Now you've got this whole dynamic going down, right, of, of, of prayer that so often prayer becomes really boring, monotonous, mundane. A lot of times people are like, oh, I'm going to go pray. They do that. Pray, right? They go, pray, right? This whole thing. So what I've learned for myself, sometimes it's really healthy for me to pray, and I just kind of take one topic, like one subject, one thing characteristic about God, and I just focus on it. And so this week I've been reading, we're actually read it here in a little bit, but it talks about the faithfulness of God and begin to think about God's faithfulness and, and God being faithful and begin to think about how, how often I take God and the characteristics of God for granted. And I thought about in the context of my own relationship with my wife that, that my wife and we have a great relationship. But I rarely ever think about her faithfulness, like how I'm number one in her life and how she chooses me and prefers me almost uh, literally daily and all the things that she does and things that she says, right, that she would there'd be other things that she would do if I were not around because she's faithful to me. I, I never get concerned when she's talking to another man, even if they're really good looking. I don't freak out like, oh, my gosh, she's going to cheat on me. Oh, my gosh, Jesus. Right. I don't ever pray, God, help my wife be faithful. I honestly just live in the confidence and the trust of her faithfulness, which means sometimes I kind of take it for granted. I don't, don't think about it. It doesn't become alive. It's not real. It's not like living and breathing with excitement. And so the same thing happens with God. Like I, we, he, he pursued me. Like he pursued me. You grew up called the hound of heaven is coming after you. His name's Jesus. And he's going to come after you until he gets you, right? No, the hound of heaven, he's coming after me. He wants to be in relationship with me. And so there was that moment that, that God spoke into me as a kid and, and awakened me. And I was like, oh, God, I want to be in relationship with you. And you want to be in relationship with me. And in that moment, we entered into this what's considered like a marriage relationship, like a, like a covenant relationship, Right? Like a covenant, like we are a broken covenant. We are together. We are committed in our relationship. And in that moment, God was utterly and completely faithful to me. Like he literally can't not be faithful. Like he literally has to be faithful. It defines him. And so I literally this week just began to think about God's faithfulness and all the areas of like stupidity and immaturity and faithlessness that defines me. And I think about my, I think about my thoughts and I think about my actions, right? And I think about how I, my moment is like, eh, Jesus, eh, whatever, faithlessness, right? And I recognize in those moments that when my, this is important, in my faithlessness, God kind of rises like this in a larger faithfulness in my life. Like, I don't know if you've ever watched God, like in your prayer times, like get up. Like, you might not see it, but you feel it. Like, he like gets up and you're like, oh, <laughs> right? And in my prayer time, like God was getting up. When he like, you know what, you know, like I was sat with a guy one time. He played offensive line at UCF. He came to our college ministry, and I'll never forget, we met, like we met one day. He wanted to talk to me about some issues. And I, got, and I knew he played for UCF, but I never really like looked at him. You know, you know what I'm talking about? But there was that moment he sat across from me, and I realized my neck was hurting by looking at him sitting in the same type chair. And then he stood up to give me a hug, and I realized I barely got like around. It was like 45% around his entire torso, and he's like squeezing me to death. And my, my, like, my head's like going right here into his armpit, right? I mean, it was 
was like sitting, and like he got up, right? He got up, and I realized in him getting up, he's like, he's huge, right? And then when God gets up, and he's huge in his faithfulness, and you're undone. Like, that's been this week. Like, God got up in his faithfulness, and I'm like, oh, you're so faithful. You pursue me. Like, you come after me. Like, you, when I'm a complete idiot, I use other words. I might cuss sometimes when I pray. I'm just letting you know in advance, okay? Like, I'm honest about who I am and stuff. I'm just being honest, okay? Children don't cuss. It's terrible, right? No, I'm like, before the Lord's being really honest. And I'm like, oh, I feel like a complete whatever, right? And, and I'm like, oh, but, and the, but God rises, but I'm faithful. You know, and in this, I feel like this is what First Corinthians is about, it's this idea of Paul looking at his, 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 his people who are important to him. And he says, we, we, we listen, we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians 3. Oh, we laid this foundation of Jesus, like the faithfulness. It, it arose inside of you, the goodness of God, his kindness, his affection, his love, his justice. These things arose inside of you, but you're taking them for granted. You should have built a building of your life. You should have built a building of your life. This is First Corinthians 3. This is the message from last week. You should have built a building of your life that, that is true to the foundation because you can't build anything but a Jesus building on a Jesus foundation. And we said last week we, we've been building this building of our life that's not up to code. And Jesus is, and Paul's speaking in the moment to these children that he's faithful to, that he loves. Is, oh, you should be mature. But you are immature. The building that you're building on the foundation of Jesus, it just can't stand because it's not a Jesus building. It's a, it's a building of self. This week I was reading through all of, through 1 Corinthians. I got to chapter 10, verse 24, and I don't look there yet. But, but I got to this point and I realized that, that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24 is like this, the cliff notes... Of the entire letter. Like you can read that one verse and understand all of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to kind of, I'm going to share it with you today. And then you guys still pay attention. I know a cliff notes like, oh, I get the whole thing. Great. And then you can kind of check out. And then you just need to focus in, right? But 1 Corinthians 10, 24 says this. Paul speaking says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. You should write that down, right? This is it's like someone tells you, so what do you think First Corinthians is about? Well, it's about 10, 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And so in the first four chapters, he talks about disunity and this disruption. He says, guys, you should, you should stop preferring yourself and prefer others, right? He gets into talking about marriage, I think, in chapter 6. And, and it's like, listen, love one another. We get into chapter 10 and 11 of the Lord's Supper. He says, start, you, stop using the Lord's Supper as a time to exalt yourself, right? Take those who are lesser than and bring them in, right? We see in the, in the gifts of the Holy Spirit in, 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 12, in 12 and 13 and 14, right? He talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he says, hey, stop using them for your own good, because they're supposed to be about chapter 13, love. Love is the purpose of not exalting self, but exalting others, loving others, expressing the gifts so that others can experience the love of Jesus. 
1 Corinthians 10, 24 really is the central hub of the, it's the whole thing summed up in one verse. And so I'm expecting this week as you like really dive into 1 Corinthians and read the whole thing for yourself, that you use this as this foundational piece, right? Because what we're, this is important, guys. This is the thing that struck me this week. We talk about being grounded for life. Put that screen back, shot back up there for me. It's like we talk about being grounded for life right here. Grounded for life is this. It is growing in this place of not seeking my own good, but the good of others, loving God and loving my neighbor. See, if you were to sum up all of Paul's view of immaturity, it all revolves around this fact that they are living for their own good as a primary pursuit of all of their energies and not living for sacrificially to love and for the, to love others and for the good of others. And so the grounded for a life, the foundation for life is roots that expressed in loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind and loving my neighbor as I love myself. Expression of maturity is not grounded in how many of the gifts of the Holy Spirit we in, not how many people we've raised from the dead, how, not, not how many people we've prayed for, the legs have grown, not how many people can see in the spirit realm. It's not how many people can like pray all day long and read their Bibles for days and days at a time. God looks and says, I don't care if you're illiterate and can't read. I don't care if you can't even hear anything. What I want to know is, do you love me and do you love others? And so when Paul speaks about in chapter 3 about immaturity, it all revolves around this. This is the foundation. This is the pursuit. How well do we sacrificially, as a primary pursuit, love others? The whole letter, the whole, excuse me, the whole letter hinges. The whole letter, really, of First and Second Corinthians, hinges on this reality. So this morning, I want to, I want to dive into this chapter one. I'm going to look at the, this three different sections of scripture: four through nine, ten through sixteen, and then seventeen through thirty-one. I've already said, I'll say it again. I'm not going to cover everything that needs to be covered in this. So you cover it this week in your own time with Jesus. Okay? Verses one through three is, hey, how's it going, guys? This is introduction, salutations. Okay? So here we go. Chapter one, verse four through nine. Paul, Paul speaking, I always thank my God for you because of this, his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech, and with all knowledge, God, thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will always keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what I want you to see in these verses, this is important. What I want you to see in these verses, verses is this reality of all that God has done to be to bless to bless these people in Corinth. We, we are reading the foundation of what has been laid out for them. And let me just say this as a caveat. As we go through this, this is important. This is the foundation that Christ has laid in you also. When Paul talks about the foundation that's been laid in Christ, this is what he did in Corinth and the Corinthians. This is what he's done 
for use. We'll look at some of these things in verse four. It says grace has been given to them in Christ. Verse four, Christ, grace has been given to them in Christ. I love that because what he's saying is grace, all of God's ability, all of God's delight, all of God's love, all of God's favor, all of God has been given, has been given to them in the person of Jesus who now resides in their heart. Remember, Jesus, God has gotten up in their life. I mean, Jesus is all up in that. You can say it that way, right? Jesus is all up in that, right? Jesus is here. Grace has been given to them in Christ. Full of Jesus, God has gotten up into their life. That should, that, listen, all of these should throw us out of our chairs going, oh my gosh, this is too good to be true. If we don't think of, listen, the greatest issue we have with God the greatest issue we have with God is we never realize how big he is. I mean, we don't. Anyway, so there you go. He's big. So I'm getting that. Verse 5 says, through Christ, they have been enriched in every way. I don't think nobody actually believes that. Because what he says is, through Christ, you have been made rich in every way that you've ever been lacking. He says, specifically naming knowledge and speech. He's like talking about this relationship. He's like, you literally have been enriched. You, where you were once poor, you have become rich. You have been enriched in every way. This is good news. Amazing, amazing stuff right here, right? Verse 7. I almost said amazing crap. That wouldn't make any sense, right? Amazing stuff. Good stuff, right? Verse 7. Not lacking any spiritual gift. Not lacking any spiritual gift. Can you see that? Like, you're really not lacking a spiritual gift. Like they're not like everything that all these gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gift of prophecy, gift of tongues, interpretation of tongues, words of knowledge, gift of discerning of spirits, right? The gift of teaching, the gift of administration, the gift of evangelism, right? All of these things are flowing. They've been given to them in Christ. Like we're going to look more at this in upcoming weeks, but I just want you to know at vintage, like I have, like I personally have experienced and moved in. Every single one of these gifts I've spoken prophetically things. I shouldn't know that I knew words of knowledge. Look at someone and said, your dad's name is John and he left you when you were a four and you haven't seen him since. She's like, duh, and started weeping. I said, God's going to restore that relationship this year. 366 days later, I saw her. She came up to me and with her arms, like, and started weeping. Everything, God, God brought my dad back in my life. He repented, and we had this unbelievable relationship. I didn't know that. But God loved her enough to tell her through me. Right? All these gifts are moving. All of them are moving. Verse 8, God is keeping them firm to the end so they'll be blameless. God is keeping them firm to the end. Like, that's great. Like, you know how you, you kind of maneuver in your child's life because you know if you stepped out as like, and they're like, especially in junior high, they're going to do some dumb things. Right? So what do you do? You maneuver in their life to make sure they don't do stupid things and kill themselves. I mean, literally, God's maneuvering because he calls us stupid, dumb sheep. He doesn't use those words. He calls us sheep, though. And we know they're dumb. Right? We'll follow each other off the cliff because they're stupid, right? He says, I'm going to maneuver so you won't kill yourself and do stupid things. Remember verse 9? Verse 9, God is faithful to them and called them to fellowship. All right. God stood up with faithfulness and said, I am God and far above you. 
And I'm not just calling you to follow me. I'm calling you into fellowship, into relationship, into the depth of intimacy, intimacy where you know me, I know you. Like that. We could literally pray about that for the next year and never exhaust the riches of what you would pull from this reality. Listen, I'll just be honest with you. I just want to apologize on behalf of the church. who's done a really poor job of creating a big enough picture of who God is. Those of you who are like, God, oh, yeah, he and I are great. We're buddies. You're not buddies with God. He is Lord and Savior and intimate and close. The only way you... God, we could just spend all day on this stuff. He's so good. He is so loving. He is the fullness. Listen, let me say this to you. This has been with me for the last three weeks. God stopped visiting us when Jesus came. He now habitates with us, so you don't have to wait for his coming. He resides with us. Amen. This is huge. We never will. Oh God, would you come? He says, I'm already here. I say that when I mean, God, I want you to come with a greater knowledge of who you already are in me. So when I pray up here, oh, God, I pray that you would come. I'm not saying, oh, Jesus, sure, in Alabama, would you come here to Georgia and to Dallas and hang out with me? I'm not praying anything. God, would you come in a way I don't know yet? Would you open my eyes to, to experience and awake like I've never known before to who you are, God? Oh, I just see the little bit of taste. You want all of it. Oh, you're so big. Oh, you're so good. You live with me. You dwell with me. You habitate with me. You never leave me nor forsake me. You don't visit you live with me. Gosh, this to change everything. This is what Paul's done. His lazy. Jesus has laid a foundation. He stood up. And you went, oh. Like my offensive lineman friend, Chad Wising, he sort of went, oh, Jesus, help me. Don't make him let one be mad at me, right? All right. Number two thing we're going to dive into. So God's laid this foundation. It's great. Pick up in verse 10. I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Not just a guy thing, not just a girl thing. It's a all of them thing. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say. And there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, who's Peter, right? Still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he gets all personal. I just thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I guess I'll also baptize a household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember anyone that I baptized. <laughs> right? You just, you just see Paul's like, I don't like killing all these great arguments. I don't know who I baptized. Are you kidding me? I can remember like two people. That's it. And there's all these divisions going on. So what I want to do is I want to build a little historical background. Because you can't really read something unless you have the context of what's happening. Okay, and so in Corinth, what you have is this dynamic of, of of this Corinthian church being more culturally focused in their lifestyle and less Jesus focused 
in their lifestyle. They're building a cultural building on the foundation of Jesus, not a Christ-centered Jesus building on the foundation of Jesus. And so what you have here is important to recognize, historically speaking, historically speaking, you have the Corinthian, the Corinthians, the city of Corinth, that was primarily settled by freed slaves and by retired war veterans. This is really important. That's why Paul says in verse, this is what Paul means in verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards because you were slaves or war veterans, right? Not many of you were influential because you were slaves. You were war veterans. And not many of you were of noble birth, which meant there were a few, but most of them weren't. And so in Corinth, what you have are these people who were not people of primarily of money and prestige. They didn't have like they weren't like they weren't old Marietta, right? They weren't the blue bloods. They were these people who were trying to trying to climb the social ladder, right? They were trying to be somebody, right? These people, therefore, they lived. These people trying to climb the social ladder were in this highly competitive Roman culture. This is really important. This changes your reading in First Corinthians, right? They were highly competitive because the Roman culture is highly competitive. Where honor, influence, and prestige are the primary currency of the culture. Had they functioned, they functioned in Old Marietta, trying to get invited to this party, doing what? What's that thing called where you go and try to learn? What's it called? Like do like social clubs and. Cotillion, all that kind of garbage. I mean, the stuff, right? Whatever it is, right? I'm just kidding. If you did that, God bless you. If you're sending your kids there, God, God bless them. No. So this whole dynamic going down, this culture, trying to engage the culture, trying to be like the culture, honor, prestige. Like you understand that, right? You know what I'm getting at. Like these people who are trying to like trying to be somebody. You know, those people who are like they're friends with you until the cooler kids come in. They don't be friends with you anymore. That's what we're talking about. Highly competitive, trying to climb this social ladder, spending more time aware of people and what people think about them and what they're not saying about them, what they are saying about them. Right? The competition. And Corinth would have, been, would have been strong enough that people would have been vying in business, politics, and all their claims to status. Because, they, listen, they had that complex about them. They wanted to be like Rome. Everyone wanted to be like Rome. And they had this complex about being unlike Rome. In fact, you could go read it. The... The old Roman um, writers used to basically write about how dysfunctional and backwards Corinth was. It's like a slap in the face, right? Because they were like the, they're just this disconnect. So they're in Corinth and they're fighting as a culture in competition and the social ladder trying to become people that they weren't but wanted to be because that's what culture told them to become. And so then add to that fact that you in Corinth, you had these people, these different philosophers that were called sophists who would come and in their culture, they would come and they would speak at these open air platforms all the time. Think about Socrates, think about Aristotle and Plato, these kind of guys, right? They come in, they have these different views and opinions, these different styles of teaching. They would come in and it was almost like this is where their people, like this is like the doors Bulldogs and Yellow Jackets, right? It's like these people who represented their like their 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 people, their their arguments, and they had these special philosophers that they got on their team. They were called sects, right? S E C T, right? Had this group of people who'd be together, and they'd be so this, and they get together, and start speaking, and start speaking, and they would get so competitive. It's like 
I love this phrase. They come to fisticuffs. I love that phrase, right? That they just like started getting in fights and stuff because they were so impassioned. And here's the funny thing about it. They didn't ultimately care what they had to say. They just cared who was better at talking. It's kind of like, you know, our presidential debates, you know. <laughs> People come up, he was such a great speaker, right? Like, this is not political at all. This is kind of like a personal observation. Like, I love Ben Carson. I would probably vote for Ben Carson. But that man, you put him next to Mike Huckabee trying to speak? I could listen to Mike Huckabee all day long. It's like, oh, my gosh, he's such a great speaker, and he proclaims truth so well, right? And, and we all walk away going, oh, my gosh, he was such a great speaker. And we literally think about voting for someone because they can just speak better. That's not what happens right here. This happens right here. This is the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing we experience in our own culture. This is, ours are these people, right, and, and theirs are these philosophers, and so you have this dynamic going down. All of a sudden, the culture is competition. The culture is philosophers, sophists who come in. Everyone kind of gets behind one. They get hyper-competitive in the culture. And so in the moment, you find this exact same struggle of the culture spilling over into the church, don't you? You have these people who are vying for position. And so they find, they jockey for position by finding their favorite speaker or leader who's come into their body. Remember, it's only 50 people or less that make up the church at Corinth. And they're naming four people that they're getting behind. They're getting behind Paul. They're getting behind Apollos. They're getting behind Cephas, who was the apostle Peter, who'd been down there. And they're getting behind Jesus. And they're vying for jockeying for position because they're trying to figure out who's the primary leader that we need to get behind. Because if we get behind them, it'll make us look better. Like, I'm sure none of you have, have treated the pastor differently because you wanted something from him. In any church you've ever been in. I know you don't do that for me. I know you're always as nice to me as you are everybody else. People who are leaders. I know that you're just as nice to all of your work, people you work with, as you are to your boss and your manager. I know that you are because you're great Christians. I know you treat all of your neighbors exactly the same way and love each of them the same way, even the ones who are mean and the ones who are nice. I know that you do that because you're great Christians. This is the foundation, right, of submitting ourselves to one another and loving one another. And so Paul's coming in and saying, man, you are so bound by your culture, the divisions and tensions that overtake this letter. They reveal the age-old problem of looking out for number one rather than looking out for the interests of a fellow believer and those that are in need. It's defining this. It's the verse from chapter 10 we read earlier. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Paul's coming and saying, your rivalry and your tension and your quarrels with one another show me that you are immature because you are more aware about your own needs and your own aspirations, your own desires, the things that you want versus what is best and what they need and what God wants to do through you. So then we go into the, the, these last few verses. Actually, there's like 15 of them. I'm going to read all of them. I'm just going to focus on a few of them. I encourage you to focus on the others, keeping all this in mind, okay? It says this. <clears throat> Follow along on the screen in your own Bible. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Right? Remember he just said, I didn't, not only who I baptized, I didn't come to baptize. I didn't create, come here to create a sect of followers who'd be my baptizees, right? No. I just came to preach the gospel. I don't care. I don't say, I don't care who I baptized. I'm not about, I'm not, not, not about cheeks and seats right here in Corinth. 
they say, and that's like some like inside terms, the church cheeks and sees people who come to your church, right? Numbers don't matter to me. I've come to preach the gospel, he says, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. The message of the cross is the power of God. The reality of the cross and what it means for us is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Basically, philosophers spend all sorts of time talking about God, reality of God, finding God. Like, you can't, whatever it is, you can't philosophize yourself to this place of knowing God is getting at, right? And he goes on, has not God made foolish these things, right? Jews demand signs, verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It seems like foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those of us who, whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, it's the Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, this is where he comes down talking to them being slaves again, right? And he's, he's described them the whole time in this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose you, the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. God chose you, the weak things of the world, to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, you, and the despised things and the things that are not, nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him because of the Father moving in him, that you were in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts not boast in themselves, but to boast in the Lord. Three things I want you to see from this. I want you to process in this section. Paul looked at them and said, I want converts, those who shift direction and give their life to Jesus. I want their faith to be established in the power of and the experience of God, not in the persuasive act of a human being. Paul felt the earth. Listen, this, listen, this is my favorite thing. People are afraid of evangelism, aren't they? Because what am I going to say? What if I can answer questions, blah, 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 as if you really have the persuasive words enough to explain Jesus so that they can lead them to faith. All right? He comes here and says, Paul felt the urgency of people's conversion being based on their knowledge of Jesus, not the words or influence of man. He wanted them to be one to the gospel, to the power of God and the convincing power and the work of the Holy Spirit, not in his oratory abilities, not in his preaching ability, not in his ability to do philosophy well and to be a sophist like the rest of these guys, right? He wanted them to come. He is trying to crush this cultural focus on honor and privilege through philosophy and arguing. Faith is not based on persuasive words it's not based on the people who speak and, the, and we follow them. It's based on the power of God and his action. This is the primary thing. Verse 17. Christ sent me to preach the gospel and not with cleverness and the use of words. Because if I do that, I literally empty the power of the cross in the words that I'm speaking. Lest I empty the cross of its power. So 
He's coming and saying, guys, it's not these things that you define as important, that you vie for, that you try to have honor and prestige. It's about the gospel. It's about preaching the gospel. Truly interesting, historically speaking, in chapter, uh, I I think it's chapter 17, he's in Athens, Greece, and he goes before the Areopagus, and he has the most, um, the most places they do philosophy, and he gets up and preaches, you should go, it's it's one of the most, um, it's like actually the the sermon of of Paul, it's really profound, it's considered the greatest uh, sermon he ever preached, he actually never names the name Jesus in the message, which is really, really interesting, he never names the name Jesus, he just goes and preaches for the Areopagus, and defines Jesus in these different ways, and using the Greek um, literature and poetry. It's really powerful. But then it says he goes from, so he's been using his own words, his own oratory abilities and coming and doing all this philosophy. Then it says he comes into, immediately from that, he goes into Corinth. And he says right here, I didn't come with cleverness of speech, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And some theologians wonder, did he recognize that because he recognized in the moment on on his ship ride from Athens down here into Corinth, did he realize he'd been too much in his own strength that he was trying to be too much like these guys and trying to be too influential in his words people don't know for sure but some people I mean, my point is that's an interesting i'm not saying so that's gospel truth i'm saying that's something interesting to consider go read Acts 17 and 18 go read that that transition what was paul getting at why was that so important that they understood he didn't come speaking in this oratory way as they were used to but came in humility just expressing the power of God. It's interesting. Second thing we see, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. He spends like about seven or eight verses on kind of talking around this issue. And according to Paul, power finds its source in the cross of Jesus. Power finds its source in the cross of Jesus. And here's the point. Don't miss out on this. The cross is counterintuitive, does not make sense, it does not compute for them. The cross is counterintuitive to everything they understand about power. It says for Jews, it's a stumbling block. Well, why is it a stumbling block, Steve? Because they knew the Messiah was going to be a warring king who was going to come and set them free from Roman power. And when Jesus did not do what they expected in ultimate power and dismantle Roman power, then they stumbled. Like, we can't, we can't give our lives to a Messiah who didn't do what we expected. And then for the, for the, for the, the Greeks here, right, for those in, who are here in Corinth, I mean, the cross represented the death of a person who was completely dishonored with disgrace and dying in weakness. Everything about the cross screams weakness and dishonor, so it's a story. Ugh, what? The cross? Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. There's no way a God would dishonor himself that much to die on the cross of great dishonor. There's no way. There's just no, that's just silly talk. Because of their cultural understanding of what honor is. And so he says it's foolishness because they don't understand the way of God. That actually the greatest honor is not living for self and, for, and pushing self and honor for self. It's actually getting out of the way of others so that they can succeed. So that you can die to your own things so that they can have honor so that they can be loved, so that they can succeed in life. 
The saddest thing in the world for me is when a woman gets, when someone gets married and their mom makes it all about themselves. You've been around those people? Like they show up in a really nice dress and they become this like real visible piece because it's the wedding they never had, all that kind of garbage, right? And rather than just making all about them and dying to self so that the bride can be lifted high. So we're experiencing marriage. That this is, this is wisdom. Not about promoting self. Wisdom. See, the cross celebrates and honors. Listen, the cross celebrates and it honors as Lord Jesus who died in disgrace and weakness for the sake of others. See, greatest honor, greatest potential, right? These, this greatest influence we find in life, the greatest power, the greatest wisdom we have is not embracing the culture, but embracing this reality of death to self so that others may simply live. I want to put this on the screen. Like Jesus. Put it up there for me. Here we go. Like Jesus. Lowering yourself. This would be a picture-taking moment. This is something you should pray into this week. Like Jesus, lowering yourself in the world's eyes to serve others and assist them on their journey of discipleship emerges as the path to lasting honor and lasting advantage, not claiming honor for self and insisting on the enjoyment of your own personal rights. Life Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We barely miss it in the 1700s. Biblically speaking, it would be life. We had the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for others. Miss it by two words. We're so close as a country. So close. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for others. So you think about this in the kingdom. You're like, well, Steve, but if I don't, if I don't, this is what you defend. Well, if I don't promote myself, if I don't do this, then I'm going to get trampled on. And I would say, you know what? Sounds like Jesus. Because the perfect idea of the kingdom is that we're both seeking life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for others. Let's say you have a happy marriage. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I'm pursuing it for my wife. I'm pursuing it for my husband. I'm pursuing it for my spouse. And if you're both doing that, then you have a kingdom marriage focused on the foundation of Jesus and a building that looks like Christ. But we are so caught up on defending ourselves, exalting ourselves, making sure our voice is heard, making sure that we're number one, making sure no one ridicules and makes fun of me, making sure that everyone knows how important I am. Like Jesus, lowering yourself in the world's eyes to take off your outer garment, wrap it around your waist, to kneel down and begin to wash the feet of others and to serve them and assist them on their journey of becoming like Jesus. From the cross, that emerges as the path to lasting honor and lasting advantage, to lasting wisdom, to lasting power in your life. And Paul comes down and says, I built that foundation in you, and now you're building a cultural building of discord and of quarrels and of jealousy and of strife. It's a building that we cannot withstand time. It cannot listen, when Jesus comes, yes, you're a Christian, but he's going to come and shake the earth and burn it, and you're going to dive out of the building that you built the very last second before you die. That's what it says here in Scripture in the end of chapter 3. You should be mature 
You should be mature, right? But you're not. So three things we take away from this this morning. Christian culture cannot be compatible with with a culture that insists on the exercise of individual rights at the expense of others. And that insists on the exercise of the values of self-gratification and self-fulfillment. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. Christian culture cannot be compatible with the culture of selfishness that we live in. Second thing, living for Christ. This is important. Hear this. I probably should put on the screen. I apologize. Living for Christ might cost, I love this, might cost the more privilege in the church quite a lot. And it costs you a lot in terms of continued social climbing or even the maintenance of their status in society. But there can be Listen, there can be no true advantage that we can receive where a fellow Christian is injured or forgotten. Say it again. There, is, there can be no true advantage to us in life where a fellow Christian is injured or forgotten as we climb a ladder. Third thing, God has blessed them, given them grace, saved them, but they have focused their life boasting on themselves rather than boasting on God and boasting in Christ. They think that wisdom is to make much of themselves so others can see them, so they can climb the social ladder to make themselves be seen, be important, and to be known, and to network well so that everyone speaks highly of them and recognizes them as people of importance. And he says the only thing you can boast, the only thing that's worthy of boasting is the work of Jesus and the cross of Christ. The only thing that makes us mature is that we seek out the good of others and not seek out our own good as our primary pursuit. I want to just encourage you. This is a true statement. This message message applies to each of you in some way. I don't know where. It's not going to go through a list. Okay? It applies to each of you in some place of your heart and your life. And what we want to do is say, God, we, we don't want to build a building like this. We want to build a building that it's up to code for the foundation of Jesus. And I want to encourage you today, and you can go back. We're going to actually started video podcasting, which is pretty cool. We also have our main podcast. You can go back and listen to this, but I want God to begin to speak this truth of, uh, truth of 1 Corinthians. You've been blessed because you're loved and the foundation's been built. You are so bound. Some of us are so bound by our culture. Here's the thing about it. This is, this is important. I'm done. You can go ahead. Worship team, go ahead and come forward. Do you know... That the Corinthian church did not believe Paul. That's why we have the letter 2 Corinthians. Because he writes them, they write back. Like he writes in 1 Corinthians, they write back, disagreeing with him in their letter. And then he talks about it in 2 Corinthians, of how they're wrong. They don't believe, you know why? Because each of us are so easily bound up by our culture, we don't even realize we're not living and building on a foundation of Jesus. We're clueless. Jesus names something, I name something, and we defend ourselves. 
Don't defend yourself. This morning, as we go into a time of worship and prayer, I want to encourage you to have an honest conversation and journey with Jesus this morning into this stuff. God, okay, naked before you, whatever you want to say and do, Jesus, you're Lord, I am not. Where am I missing it? Where am I disconnected? What's going on here, Jesus? Where am I seeking out my own good at the expense of somebody else? God, where am I immature needing to build in the foundation of Jesus? God, put your finger. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the way you've graced me. You've blessed me. I want to be a, you've blessed me to be a blessing to others. Tell this story real quick. Tammy Hutchins in India, they, um, she's one of our missionaries, and she has Karube homes. It, it, it is an orphanage, truly, in the sense that it, it is people who are um, these children who don't have parents. But they come into this home, and now they have a home. It's this, these are Tammy's their mom, and Jesus is their father, aunties and uncles, brothers and sisters, a beautiful thing, right? But they're the ones that you would give to at Christmas, right? Oh, let's give to the needy children. Let's give to the orphans. And so you stroke a check and say, oh, Jesus, thank you, bless them. Right? And so they receive it. So they sit down as, an, as, a, as children in this children's home. And they say, our, one of, like, the primary value for us as a children's home is that we feel like God has blessed us to be a blessing. And so this Christmas, they took all of these gifts that came in for them, and they held a big festival. They held a big festival for over 200 at-risk children in their community. It was an all-day affair. They just held back no expense and said, God's blessed us to be a blessing. And in her blog, she even said, you know, we have the rights to use this for ourselves because we really are the needy ones. We're the orphans. But our children have recognized we've been blessed to be a blessing. So all day long, and the children all had jobs and roles, gave of their own money, their own resources to make this festival happen. They built a Jesus building on a Jesus foundation. God's blessed us to be a blessing. It is the overarching theme of the whole letter of 1 Corinth. And it's how Paul defines maturity in Christ. This morning, I just invite you to respond. We have our, for those of you who don't know, this is our offering baskets. And so if you came ready to give today, this is where you do that. Right here, we have communion available. We come and celebrate the work of Jesus, the way he's blessed us, brought us into relationship, how he's blessed us in a powerful way. We have ministry teams. They can go ahead and come forward, make their, get, get in place. And they just want to pray for you today because I believe you take this journey, you begin to realize there's junk in your life, there's stuff in your life. And so we're not going to have it like, we're not going to like sing a song and then pray you out. This is the official ending. And so you are free to go. And I, when I walk off stage, you're free to go. You can go now for all I care. But, but you can, you seem to stay, but you stay as long as you need to and let God do this work. And when you're ready to go, then you're released to go. When you're released to go, you're going to go sign up for Honduras or talk to Timothy. And you're going to go and you're going to go and sign up for small groups. But I want you today to take this little journey with the Lord into these areas of whether or not cultural Christian or biblical Christian, foundational Christian or off the foundation. And let's let God speak to you this morning. Okay? You guys respond as the Lord leads. Have a great day. We'll see you soon.